folks, I hope everybody had a great weekend. We have officially hit springtime, finally. I say that finally, but although the winter here is pretty awesome, so now actually we're getting into the hot months. Eesh. But uh, yeah, so Friday, Friday marked the first day of the spring hunting seasons. Now we have the OTC general tags, or general seasons, excuse me, are now open across the state for bear. To find out which units exactly, make sure you're hunting up the Arizona spring regs. Uh, also, good recent news for Arizona hunters is that the elk antelope draw was finally undertaken. Uh, port results went live this past Saturday. I know many of my friends drew some awesome elk tags from all across the state. I myself was lucky enough to draw a muzzle or cow tag on a party tag with some friends of mine. Um, so we'll definitely be looking to fill the freezer this November. But on today's podcast, I've been joined via Zoom by Mark Boardman. If you're not familiar with that name, you might know his voice from his work as the co-host of the Vortex Nation podcast. It's admittedly one of my favorites to listen to when I'm not actually working on my podcast. But uh, of course, Mark is more than a voice. He works in the digital media sector over at Vortex Optics. Uh, he works with content creators from across the nation to bring you the great media you've come to expect from Vortex Optics. Uh, Mark has come down to Arizona a couple times to hunt what's kind of, to me, has kind of quickly become the ubiquitous Arizona species for out-of-staters, uh, at least from what I see on, you know, all the online forums and, and, you know, videos and whatnot, but I'm talking about the coos deer, that little gray ghost of ours, but, uh, based on his experience and, you know, my own down here chasing the gray ghost, we're going to dissect the tools and techniques that are employed here, you know, to kind of help you bring home some backstrap. Remember, if you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe to Arizona Field as well as to check us out on Instagram at Arizona underscore a field underscore podcast. We definitely appreciate it. Um, there you can keep up to date with all the goings on here at the AZ Field Podcast. Uh, I guess with that, I'm going to stop yammering, hit this button, and let's get this show on the road. Yeah, so we're sitting here. We're talking with Mr. Mark Boardman at Vortex Optics. Um Mark, I can't thank you enough for coming on. No, thanks, man. Appreciate the invite. So for the folks that don't know, um, can you give us a little background on yourself? Like what do you do at Vortex and just everything that goes on there? Yeah, so your personal bio, uh, originally from Washington State, uh, migrated, continually, I guess, migrated east. Uh, once I finished up school out there, I uh, uh, worked for Cabela's at their corporate headquarters in, in, in Nebraska for about seven years and found Vortex and migrated further east and have been here for about 12 years, which is hard to believe. I mean, that's uh, it's gone insanely quick, and I think that's just a testament to how darn fun it is here, and, and we're you know, creating, you know, at least pro products that I have a, a big interest in. So you definitely never feel like you're at work. So it's a pretty cool spot. Yeah, it's pretty wicked. I mean, that's got to be a wicked change, though, going from, you know, the big. So were you from the big timber part of Washington or the eastern part of Washington? So I'm, I'm from the west side of the state, which is probably a pretty big contrast to uh, Arizona, right? Uh, maybe oh, yeah. you can, you can couldn't find a more different landscape but yeah so i'm from the west side of the state where i went to school at um washington state university that's in pullman on the east side of the state so definitely more arid uh rolling wheat country um the palouse which is kind of like a pretty unique landscape and then you've got the snake river breaks um out there as well which is really cool uh really cool uh region but uh but yeah so yeah no it's definitely different uh i, I there's things i miss about the west every day but i'm i'm pretty sure if i moved back ever i'd be like oh man you know i sure 
wish I could hunt whitetails for six months, you know, and, and it's, it's pretty cool out here too. That's one thing that I've found, although it's easy to like get that grass is greener approach. Like I definitely hunt out West as much as I can. Um, no matter where you are, there's definitely really cool opportunities in your backyard. Oh, for sure. I mean, that's one of the things, that's all reason for this podcast on our end is just to, I want to show it's, I just can't get over how much opportunity there is in Arizona, but every state, you know, has that myriad of opportunities and, um, but I mean, hell, I mean, I have a, I can go, uh, carp fishing right out my back door. You know, it's a, like a half a mile walk and I'm casting a fly rod for, for grass carp. Oh um, gosh, that sounds absolutely awesome. <laughs> it's pretty badass. but, uh, fly, fly fishing for carp is definitely the people who are into it, like know how amazing that is. And, uh, it's definitely kind of an unsung, at least in my experience, like a, a pretty unsung fishery, but, uh, one yeah. of the coolest ones that's out there. Yeah, for sure. And it's getting really popular here. Um, just cause that's, that's our closest fishery to here in the Valley anyways. We've got all the crisscross with different canals and, uh, guys are really starting to hit it. I'm just getting into it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's been a ton of fun. I mean, they're a, the most frustrating fish I've ever put a lure in front of. But oh yeah, <laughs> I I haven't. Now we're getting on the you know the, the carp tangent here. But I I did a little bit of it when I was in Nebraska, and then on on Lake Michigan out here. Apparently, there's like a really cool carp fishery where guys are, you know, like I, I think they're push pulling flats boats, you know, and yeah. you know hucking long casts at you know pods of carp as and it's just like you know I mean people talk about them like you know golden bones. I'm just like oh man, I need to get out there and do that, but. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I know. Um, when I was in New York, when I still lived back there, uh, there were, carp is just starting to become an accepted fishery. But it's it's. I think it's. Um, well, I think it was the kid that played. Uh, oh, the mean kid on Harry Potter. Um. Okay. Right. Anyways, he's. I guess he's really into carp fishing. So he came over to New York and got into the fishing and actually put on a tournament. Uh, up in uh, Waddington, New York, up on the St. Lawrence River, where first prize was a Toyota pickup. Um, back when, like, the second-gen Tundras were first coming out. Uh, and it, it just kind of exploded from there. You know, this was a place that was all walleye, smallmouth bass, and musky. But now you walk into any motel up there, and the walls are just covered in, in carp pictures. Um, Unbelievable. And it just went like that. It was just, we went from a, a musky mecca to carp overnight kind of thing. It's but it's unreal, but um, so yeah, there's always opportunities everywhere, but probably should bring it back to state 48. <laughs> um, just because I can you, you ask anybody, I can go on tangents all day, but uh, yeah, so obviously, you've been down here doing some hunting, uh, you were down here last year. How, how long you've been coming to Arizona? You know, so I've hunted Arizona, you know, definitely not as much as a lot of folks out there, at least from an out of state perspective, but, um, I've been, I've hunted it three times. So, uh, over, I guess, and that'd be kind of over the last 10 years or something like that. But, um, uh, twice during the, the October rifle. And then most recently the year before last, uh, Jim and I, who I co-host our podcast with, uh, drove down we kind of did uh what we call a pod venture where we, uh, well, <laughs> he, I should say he fixed up this like mid nineties, uh, Subaru Forester, uh, made it off-road ready. And then, uh, yeah. we, yeah, we traversed the country, went to Arizona, hunted coos deer for a handful of days and got, got a couple stocks in. He actually shot and missed one with his longbow, uh, came real close. Uh, we both missed Havelina and, uh, had a hell of a time. So, uh, it was, it was a fun trip, but so that was, that was a cool one. But, uh, 
every time I go there, I'm just like, oh, man, and, and that, that hunt is getting so hyped up now, but I'm like, man, I need to do this every year, you know? Oh, for sure. Yeah, because that's one that um, I remember you guys doing the pod venture, but I forgot you guys were here, and there's a for that. You had the Forester down here. Because mm-hmm. it was a whole series on, you know, Jer- you know not jerry-rigging, but, you know, just really ramping up that, that Subaru and, and getting it going. Um, yeah, I, I definitely – I had uh, – I I don't want to use the word doubts, but I had my doubts about the uh, the off road <laughs> capability of the Subaru. Uh, but Jim, I mean Jim poured his heart into that damn thing, and uh, yeah, with a few with a few mods and uh, some elbow grease, dude, it was impressively off road capable. Like the the only limitation with that, I would say, particularly with like three people and gear and some camera gears, it's just the space. Like that thing, it's it's a really go anywhere vehicle. It's super impressive. Yeah. Yeah, I mean those all-wheel drives. I mean, it's it's for years, you know. Well, I mean, you're you're from a pretty snowy part of the, co- the country as well, you know. To me, it was always, you know, it's, you know, everybody said, uh, you know, they're great in the they're great in the snow. It's, it's basically four-wheel drives. Like, well, no, it's not four-wheel drive. It's all-wheel drive. And I always, I was kind of butted heads. But I mean, that was the when I went to college in the Adirondacks. That was like the unofficial vehicle of the of the ADKs was a Subaru Forester. I mean, you see those in the Outbacks everywhere just as much as you see you know the big f-150s and, and the silverados and all of them yeah uh, yeah yeah i mean those things they can get it they can they don't have the clearance but they they can get it if they have to well I, yeah I, i'd say you need to look at uh, take a closer look at this one that jim <laughs> <laughs> i need to go back and rewatch those <laughs> it's it's got a it's actually i think it actually has uh, and i think this might have been with a little bit of help i can't remember jim jim does all the car stuff but um Dude, I think it's got more clearance than my F one fifty. No joke. <laughs> yeah, I need to go. Yeah, I need to go back and rewatch this. I think I might have missed that episode. Uh, yeah, it's a Forester just, with clearance. Yeah. It just looks. I'm just trying to picture it in my head, and it just, it's looking like something that belongs in a monster truck rally. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, definitely go back. Go go back and watch it. Give it a couple of views so they they keep letting me come back here. So right. Yeah, keep paying the checks. Get the, get them views. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, going back to Vortex, so what, other than doing the podcast, I mean, I, so I get a wicked kick out of the Vortex Nation podcast. Um, I was actually just finishing up, uh, getting caught up with the 410 video or, uh, recording like, right before you jumped on, actually, I was just wrapping it up and, um, but what else, what's, what's like, what's your actual position at Vortex? So I'd say right now my, you know, quote title is brand experience manager and, and so, the cool part about that is, you know, it allows me a lot of touch points with, um, you know, kind of, I guess, a lot of the different teams here at Vortex. I'd say historically, um, I did a lot of, uh, you know, um, you know, and a lot of this was, I guess, you know, as Vortex was, um, you know, I guess as, as we've kind of been along our path of, of, of growth over the years, but um, media planning, media buying, media relations, things like that. And, and then kind of, now more it's more on the content production side of things but um yeah as as we've grown uh which has been amazing people have been able to specialize we've brought on you know i mean everybody's always had their head down grinding super passionate about you know the products and our customers um we've been able to bring on you know a lot more people as we've grown over the years and been able to specialize a little bit more so we've just got you know more people and more teams and you know everybody's just you know working harder than ever just you know keeping keeping the machine in motion and, and it's just super fun to watch and it's definitely um you know everything is just such a team effort around here but there's a really strong team atmosphere at the same time yeah and it just uh just works really really well so no that's pretty slick i mean you guys 
especially the last few years, I mean, it seems like just been cranking out some new products. I mean, it's just like every, it feels like it's only every few months, you know, you see something else on the shelf or like, what, or when do they come out with that kind of thing? And, you know, it's a new variation of a product or like, um, well, I guess just a spot like the, the, like the Diamondback line just seems to have exploded over the last, you know, definitely last year, but over the last like two or three, you know, it's constantly getting upgraded and, and tweaked. And, and I think that's been pretty wild and pretty badass really is to see those, um, improvements being made across a singular product line you know instead of just bringing out a new one you know you're improving on what's already you know if it, i guess it's, if it ain't broke don't fix it kind of thing but at the same time i mean there is room for improvement you guys have been making those steps and i've been pretty pretty pleased as punch to to see those yeah i mean our our goal is to provide the best products we can to our customers, right? And, you know, as technologies evolve, as, as we learn more, uh, you know, the product development team, I mean, those guys are never slowing down. So about the time <laughs> they finish something up, you know, they're on to the next thing. And you're like, oh, man, I thought this was cool. And then you kind of catch wind of something that might even be like a few years down the road. You're like, oh, man, that sounds really cool. Yeah, that's, <laughs> but, that's cool. That's uh, yeah, cool. <laughs> those, those guys are always, always charging. And, of course, you know, that drives a lot of other things as far as, you know, the marketing side of things and sales yep. and and um, and all that, but, uh, yeah, everybody's, uh, everybody's definitely on their toes all the time, just, uh, trying to, you know, grow and evolve and, you know, get better, faster, stronger with, but with that, you know, the customer is always, always at the core and always the focus. And that's definitely one thing, um, that's at the forefront and we just work real hard not to lose sight of because, um, at the end of the day, I mean, that's who we're trying to take care of. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, definitely got to take care of the customers. And I mean, that's, I mean, these are the good folks that are using it in the field. Um, but I guess we can, I keep going off on tangents. I'm just, this is just the way I, my mind works, but, uh, oh, hammer down. Yeah. yeah, man. Um, put the pillow to the metal, but yeah. So just when you guys were down here in Arizona, I'm assuming, you know, being an optics company, you guys were doing a lot of glassing and, um, actually before that, I want to get, I want to touch on, uh, ask you one thing out of all the hunts you've done here out of three years, what has kind of gotten your interest the most? Are you more into the coos and the muleys, the the hobbies? So, I mean, um, all three times that I've hunted Arizona, it's always been for coos deer. So, oh, you know, okay. that's my, um, you know, I guess my personal experience there would be like totally focused for that. And, and I, I think a lot of that goes back to um, the first time that I did it. It was just like, such an eye-opening experience i mean hunting coos deer that was the first time that i ever hucked binos on a tripod you know yeah. which was like you know almost like a just a life-changing moment for me and and really you know changed how i approach my glassing like my western glassing or even my glassing in general like i was hunting blacktails uh the last couple of years back home in washington with my family and now instead of, you know, just pulling the binos out and looking at a clear cut, it's like, no, I'll get the tripod out and I'm going to tear that clear cut a, a, apart, you know, and, you know, you're spotting deer sometimes like a thousand yards away and amongst, you know, all the nasty, gnarly stuff that you'll find in the clear cut. But, you know, those are techniques that, you know, I adopted from those Arizona experiences. Yeah, because it seems like Arizona was a place that I'm not sure if it originated here, but it seems like Arizona is kind of where tripod glassing has kind of been perfected in a way. Cause I mean, you got the guys, you know, running the big eyes, you know, two spotting scopes, you know, strapped together kind of setups. And, uh, yeah, yeah I mean, they're running like, like, yeah, pretty much 60 power binoculars in a, in a way. But, um, but with that, is there any, uh, you find yourself using like, 
leaning more towards like a lower power optic on on tripods? Or you like you want more like the, like the fifteens, eighteens, twenties, or? You know, I, I'd say, you know, I mean, as far as like my like I said, my big takeaway from that first trip to Arizona was like just how powerful and how effective implementation of a tripod with your binoculars can just level up your entire glassing and hunt game and so you know i'd say in general in any you know fairly open landscape like in washington i I definitely wasn't glassing the distances that you can like in arizona now this last year i was running 12s which is probably one of my favorite binoculars now of course all your listeners are like yeah i don't care about washington but we'll talk about (laughs) it for a minute so um but maybe somebody will come out to hunt blacktails. But and so I really like those twelves on a tripod. I find them to be super versatile. A lot of my glassing in Washington was between probably that three and probably seven hundred yard um mark, which for that for for the three, four, five stuff, I did find, you know, the twelve by fifties um not super limiting, but a little bit limiting with the field of view. Uh, in Arizona, the 12 by 50 is probably my go-to, right? Um, I really, really love that configuration, uh, for Arizona. And then, you know, even out to that, you know, probably 12 to 1500 yard mark. And, and then beyond that, at least for me personally, then it's time to, you know, up it to like, you know, maybe like our, our 18 by 56 UHD, um, is what I would probably trend towards if I wanted to, uh, you know, find some critters that are, you know, definitely out at, at a little bit further distance and that's kind of when you get more into that that big eyes uh which i mean i'm sure you're super familiar with but um you know that that little that larger more magnification bigger objective binocular to to do that a little bit more serious work but man i just i, I just like i'm beating a dead horse right but just <laughs> the, the use of a quality tripod with whatever binocular you have like, even if you don't have one that's, you know, like, oh, maybe this, you know, maybe it's just like an 8 by 42 It's going to level up your glassing game, no doubt, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah, and that's and that's one thing, I, I like, like you say, beating a dead horse. I don't think you can beat that horse enough just from the aspect, especially just from the aspect that Arizona is we getting so many transplants. We're getting so many folks from the east or from the north that, you know, even like like with your experience, you know, they're probably glassing um, – you know, hanging onto their hat or putting elbows on their knees when they're setting kind of thing. But I mean, those get you steady, but they don't, they're not going to get you as steady as a tripod. Um, so, and I think a lot of folks just, they don't, they don't, I, I know I didn't, you know, being an Eastern guy, I mean, I didn't even hear about tripods until I came out here. You know, tripods were for cameras and tri- and spotting scopes. That was it. Right. <clears throat> yeah. I, I use my, uh, I use my tripod with the binoculars probably, you know, 95% of the time compared to like with a spotting scope, 95, 98, you know, I yeah. mean, it's just like, you're just behind that optic and, you know, being, I mean, I'm not telling you anything. You or most of your listeners probably don't know, but man, just the, <laughs> how steady you can be, how, how you can spot movement because you're not moving, you know, fatigue on your arms and shoulders and just your, you know, being comfortable while glassing, you're going to glass better. You're going to glass longer. Yep. Uh, you're you're going to be more focused, right? Cause you're not like, Oh man, my shoulder's tired. Now I'm thinking about my shoulder. It's like, no, you can just stay in those optics and, you know, keep grinding. Yeah, exactly. And that's, I'm, I'm glad you pointed out how comfortable it is because that's that's one of the things that you don't think about until you're sitting up there. You know, trying you're trying to work yourself uh, across the ridge. You know, trying to find a coos or, or you know, a bedded up muley or even like I was just um, 
we did a podcast with Josh Kirshner a couple weeks ago with Bears. Um, and Bears, is that's an all-day set. I mean, you're not going out for two hours in the morning. You're you're packing lunch and you're staying on that hill because I mean, you don't you never know when that bear's going to roll out into the you know come out of the pines or out of the manzanitas and and actually present himself or herself depending on what if you're chasing a sow or whatever. But um, yeah, having that comfort level is is huge out there. Um, yeah, yeah, and oh, that was one thing. Um, and uh, me just being scatterbrain kind of guy. Uh, you pointed out like you like the twelve the twelve by fifties in Washington, and I was kind of curious, um, because I was thinking a place like Washington, like with your exit people being a little bit tighter with with twelves, um, is it are you finding yourself more in like cause I, I, when I I've never been to Washington, so when I picture I'm thinking more cloudy, rainy, kind of stuff. Do you find yourself being limited to like darker images with the twelve by fifties up there? So, I mean, yeah, your exit pupil, like you mentioned, is definitely going to be smaller than, say, like, you know, um, like a 10 by 50 or something like that, right? If you're going to kind of compare, like, apples to apples a little bit there or whatever, that might make sense. Apples but, to um, manzanitas. <laughs> right. Uh, so, yeah, and I probably I probably wasn't as clear as I should have been there. So, I really like the 12s, but I found myself in that environment, like, wishing that I had, like, a set of 10s. Like, I think a 10 by 42 or 10 by 50 in a tripod would have been a better choice. The 12s definitely were totally sufficient. So, if a person was like, well, I'm I'm from Arizona and I've got a 12 by 50, you know, is this going to work over there? It is. It is. Um, You know, I'd say particularly when you're glassing, like, you know, an open clear cut or something like that, you know, when, when you get into the timber, you know, you're going to be making some sacrifices there, like you said, with light and just the fact that, um, you just don't need that much magnification. You know, if, if you're still hunting in the timber where you think, oh man, I can only see maybe a max of, you know, 80 to 150 yards. You're like, well, do I really need the glass? And I mean, I say, yes, you know, when you're creeping along and taking a step, I mean, it's stop, look, you know, be slow, stay concealed if you can and, and let those binos really work because what might appear to be kind of like a wall of trees all of a sudden you throw your binos up and you can see you know through it and your depth of field is just going to be way way better and you know you might spot a bedded buck or you might just spot a deer that's maybe they're aware of you but they think they're completely hid and they're looking back towards you and you've got a little window to the vitals and you can you know pull up and make that shot so um and that's where definitely where an 8 by 42 or 10 by 42 would shine over a 12 no doubt yeah because i mean i know uh the little bit of glassing I did back east, you know, was all with eights, um, eight forty twos, and just to me, because especially if you're still hunting, if and if you're not familiar with still hunting, is it forces you to slow down, you know, and you 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 go up, you know, you have your you're picking that tree out, you're getting up, you always stop next to a tree. Um, I know I'm saying the obvious, but if folks don't know what we're talking about, kind of thing. I'm trying to make yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, you're stopping next to that tree, you know, you're trying to break up your silhouette. But, you know, if you're just looking around, you know, you kind of want to just take that next step and, you know, oh, there's no tree. I want to go clear the next 20 yards. I want to clear the next 15 yards. But you put up those binos and it forces you to stop. I mean, you got some movement, you know, as you're, as you're, as you're scanning, but it forces you to stop for an extra minute, extra five minutes, depending on how deeply you want to pick apart that landscape. And, um, and I mean, that just a couple of seconds can be all the difference between, you know, like you said, that, that deer that knows you're there, um, Maybe you just stopping forces them to stomp, you know, and they hit, their foot hits that ground. I mean, you're pretty, you're pretty well busted at that point, but you didn't know that she he or she was there 
you know, to me, I always got stomped at by does, you know. Yeah. Um, or you hear that, you know, then you at least you know why that she was blowing at you after you hear all that crashing and all you hear is that. So all right, we're screwed, kind of thing, and go find <laughs> yep. another one, kind of kind of deal. But uh, no, totally, and it's amazing too how just taking one, you know, every step. It gives you a new perspective, right? You think like, oh, I just took one step, but you can see through kind of like maybe a different lane of timber or or whatever, and just being, yep. you know, taking that step, being super methodical, watching your steps, making sure you're not popping sticks, so you're trying not to spook game. It's pretty thick out there, so it's nearly yep. entirely um, <laughs> impossible to not, you know, you're going through sword ferns and salile, um, you know, which are, you know, pretty leafy, can be noisy things, and obviously there's lots of timber and sticks that, you know, yep. can make noise, but you you know that's kind of the beauty of that technique is yeah and i uh, i would say i do the same thing here in arizona especially with javelina um so i love the ham season the handgun archery muzzleloader season in, in february uh this year i had a uh, an archery tag in january so i had a deer tag and, and a hobby tag in my pocket at the same time um filled the pig tag didn't fill the deer tag but uh that ham season we tend to have a bit more rains in february and it doesn't take long for this desert to green up. So you'll get these pigs, uh, and I just say right there, they are New World pigs, you know, Tassea Suidae versus Suidae, you know, New World pig versus Old World pigs. I know somebody's going to think they're a rodent or something out there. But, uh, you know, they, they'll get into the bottoms, and they'll just start feeding on, on the green, on the freshly green grass. And still hunting, you know, just working your way nice and slow, glassing constantly, or at least not technically glassing, but just looking constantly, you know, that's a great way to find pigs, you know, just milling around in, in the in the mesquite brush. Um, so it's definitely a technique that can be used here. I mean, I've used it on elk um, up north. I've never tried it on deer here, but uh, just because I tend to find myself out in the desert when I'm looking for muleys or, or I'm down south for coos, but it's definitely a very good tactic here and one that I don't think enough people are utilizing. Maybe more Easterners come in, they're going to, you know, keep it up. But it seems like Westerners kind of tend to be, and I'm, I'm probably stereotyping here, but tend to get away from the still hunting just because it's, it's a totally different hunting style out here that, that, that they grow up doing. Right. Um, yeah. Definitely more of, you know, a find it first, then go after it. And then like, you know, you're looking at it from like, oh, I've identified a habitat that they like to be in, I'm going to, you yeah. know, have a level of confidence that there's going to be something in there. I'm going to dive in, be super careful and just ease my way through and, you know, maybe get a darn close shot. So yep. I think that's what's one thing that's super cool about, you know, broadening, you know, the hunts that you go on and seeing different places and hunting different regions of the U S or wherever, you know, it takes you is you always, you always pick up something wherever you go, you know, or there's local techniques or the landscape lends itself to something, but you're like, man, I can apply that back over, you know, where I hunt all the time. And, uh, so that, that's one thing that I like for, uh, you know, trying to, I guess, you know, and I just, I think I'm a curious person in general. So I'm like, you know, it's like, I, some, you know, you talk about that greener grass stuff. It's like, I neglect what I have in my backyard. Cause I'm like, but I wonder what's over here. You know, I wonder what Arizona's <laughs> like, or I wonder what this place is like. Or, yep. But uh, I'll ask you because the first time I hunted Arizona, like I fell just in love with coos deer hunting. And uh, and so when I think about hunting Arizona, like you guys have phenomenal elk hunting, you've got multiple other species, you know, you've got, you know, great mule deer hunting as well. But uh, man, like I just, 
I do laser focus on on the coos deer. Which what do you like better? I just because to I grew up in the east chasing whitetails. Um, muleys are still enough of a new thing to me that I really like chasing muleys. It's still that I love you know I love their habitat. I love um, watching their bounding, and to me, a muley just looks like the west to me like that's to me that's a, a very iconic species um especially you know a big you know square square frame three body uh, it's just it just that, that gets my heart pumping i mean i love coos deer hunting um i love heading down south and because I'm, I'm in phoenix so i gotta drive a little bit to get well i mean there's coos deer right here and you know unit 24b has some and uh you know the but there's just something about chasing muleys. They still, they still get me. They still have that newness to them to me that I just love seeing them big floppy eared deer. <laughs> <laughs> you're 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 not gonna go wrong with them, you know. And probably yeah. I mean, and, and that's another cool thing too is there's some regions that do have a mix of both, or at least they're in close enough proximity. Yep. You know, during the archery season, which is you know that you kind of have the option there. Um, yeah, I don't know. Too much, too much fun stuff to do, I guess. Right? Yeah, and that's that's another thing that here in Arizona is there's so much opportunity. Like, um, I was actually so we were at a uh, barbecue last night, and you know, one of the guys was, he actually asked me, so do you prefer Arizona or do you prefer New York? And New York's got some great hunting. It's got great, it's got phenomenal. You know, I think it's it's uh, world class turkey hunting. It's got really good deer hunting. It's got pretty good bear hunting. The fishing is outstanding. Uh, but Arizona is just, I mean, we, like we've already mentioned, you got coos, you got mules, you got hobbies, you got elk, you got bear, you got, um, I mean, we have desert sheep on the mountain, you got lions, you got coyotes. I mean, we can hunt actually, depending on what tags you have, you can hunt full 12 months of the year and not, and not have to resort to, not that they're a bad thing, but, um, go predator hunting or rabbit hunting, which are open year round, but. Um, I mean, I think June is our, is our slowest month tag-wise, but there's still bison tags that are open. So somebody is hunting every single month of the year for a tagged, a, a drawn tag species, which I think is pretty, pretty wicked in all reality. That is, that is awesome, man. Those jacks that you guys have down there are those the is that, are those the antelope jackrabbits that you have, or what? We've got two. We've have- got antelopes and we've got blacktails. And the antelopes, those are the ones that are about the size of a coos deer, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it looks giant. like a coos run. Th- yeah, yeah. They're the ones that um, I think the record, I think it's like 13 pounds or something like that. Like, it's a big rabbit. Uh, I mean, most of ours, I mean, I mean, you'd be walking through the desert, you know, and you're kicking up blacktails, which are, you know, they're still a big rabbit, you know, but they're small compared to the antelopes. And you'd swear it was a coyote running through the brush. Um you know, or you think there's a deer, you know, a little coos or something. It's they just had that silver look, and they just look to me they look, look like a coyote. The way they run is very dog-like. But uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's and then guys love eating them too. I know. Um, actually, so the barbecue right last night was with um, Mike Cravens. He's a BHA guy here, and he's with um, Arizona Wildlife Federation. And you know, he loves eating them them jackrabbits. I mean, that's one of his go-to. I mean, he he hunts a lot with like John O'Dell, and uh, so you know, that's very cooking based um mm-hmm. and those guys make some phenomenal stuff out of them but uh yeah we've got just so much that you can do here and that's not even getting into the fish i mean just uh 
because I mean, yeah, like June we have bison tags. Well, there's bear tags too. We, um, which bear actually opens tomorrow here. Um, I'm not sure if I'm gonna head up or not, but yeah, bears. I mean, bear already opens tomorrow. Uh, I'm trying to remember. I know, and so you brought up Josh Kirchner, which um, super solid dude. Um, yeah, he's pretty wicked. And, and and we, um, yeah, he's just a great guy. We had him on our podcast chatting about bear hunting one time, but I think we were talking more specifically about. I know we talked a lot about the fall hunt, but is the June hunt, is that a draw or is that an OTC um, quota hunt as well? June is June is the drawn hunt. Okay. So we have, uh, tomorrow starts the OTC tag. So March tomorrow being March 19th, um, starts the, the OTC tag, and that goes until uh, the beginning of May. I want to say April 30th. I'll have to look at the regs, but I want to say April 30th is the last day. And then the beginning of May is the drawn tag. And that one goes from the beginning of May all the way to the end of July. Because our bears here, are, you know, tail end of June, end of July is their rut. Mm-hmm. So that's the, we have the rut tag. And then, uh, yes, we have that plus the bison tags in June. Um, yeah, and then we roll, you know, we're getting rolling for antelope and, and over-the-counter archery deer in, in mid-August. Um, so I mean, even in those hot months, you know, guys are still getting after it. That's awesome. Yeah. That's one thing it's, you know, for whatever reason, I think for a lot of folks, you know, myself included, when I first, you know, heard about the bears down in your neck of the woods, like you just don't picture, you know, a big, you know, heavy coated black bear, <laughs> you know, living in Arizona, but there's, you guys definitely got them. Oh yeah. And they'll come down in the desert. Um, they've been on the desert floor. We had a bad drought. I mean, we were in a drought, but we, it was wicked dry two or three summers ago. And uh, if you're familiar with the Phoenix area, so just north of Phoenix, there's, I think it's like, well, just north, it's 40 miles. But you have like an Anthem and New River just outside of town, like up towards like Black Canyon City, almost like you're heading to Flagstaff. Okay. Um, but it was so dry, there was bears or a bear coming into town in Anthem trying to find water, trying to find tanks. All the, all the tanks were, were dry. Oh my gosh! Um, and it's going to be interesting to see how it is this year because over the winter most of our tanks were dry. We've gotten some winter rains, but man, we can need we need something. Um, either if we don't get anything, guys are going to be trucking water hard all year. I mean, they're going to be trucking water no matter what, but it's going to be much more noticeable this year. It's going to yeah. be it's, it's 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 lining up to be a wicked dry summer. Especially, you know, last year we had the non-soon. Um we didn't get anything for for the summer rains and uh you know, kind of interesting to see how we are this year um cuz I mean, you know, my deals with like with the quail, you know, seeing how they're going to recoup and um you don't do much glassing for quail, although you will turn them up once in a while when you're looking for uh especially javelina cuz you're, you're glassing so tight. Um yeah. but yeah, it's going to be Man, it's it's going to be interesting this year, seeing how everything plays out. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, you're not to, you know, circle back, but I think that's when you're spotting quail, right? That's like when you know you're glassing good, and I think that's also something that you likely wouldn't notice unless you were hucking your binos on a tripod, right? Yeah, for um, sure. You just you just notice so much more. You catch those small flicks and that little bit of movement, and uh, yeah, I don't know. I think that's one reason why I just love hunting. Arizona just because it is so optics intensive um yeah and I, mean, I guess you know fortunate that that's what we do here because I enjoy glassing <laughs> <laughs> yeah cause, I mean the other nice thing I love about using on the tripods is just like 
using the optics when you're uh, still hunting is putting them on a tripod. It doesn't force you to slow down, but it really helps you to slow down and, you know, mark out, you know, that mental grid. Um, Cause I mean, I'm not sure how, so the way I was taught to glass here and uh, I'd be curious in how you go about it as well. But like when you, you set up your tripod, like you have like one Ridge, you know, I'm going to look at that, that face right now. I'll kind of set it up into pretty much my field of view quadrants, you know, how far I can see on, on, with an optic, um, depending on, you know, from running my, my 15s or my, my 10s. I usually run my 10s first. Um, I'll do throw about 10s on quick, and I'll, I'll glass kind of fast. And it, to me, it's I'm just knocking out the obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I did a podcast for when I my, my old job. Um, I did a podcast. Uh, actually, I was with you guys. Um, I think I was talking to Jimmy that day. But uh, anyways, for this whole podcast, we had one guest on there, um, and he always talked about when you go to a project, you kill all the elephants in the first hour. You know, everything obvious, you just knock them out early. And after that, you can start nitpicking. And I kind of think the same way with glassing. I'll throw the 10s on, knock out the obvious, I'll kill all the elephants, and then I'll go back with my 15s, and that's when I'll start really diving into the shadows. But the way I do it is, you know, I kind of picture, you know, so with photography, you have the rule of thirds, so putting a grid mark over you know uh over your your image and i kind of glass you know really picking apart each grid in that block and only once i completely you know those are clear move on to the next one and then i'll just keep going just kind of like uh i can't think of what that like a serpentine motion i kind of go left to right right to left and just work my way down the ridge and then um you know like i said you know following the shadow line so every time the every few minutes you go back and just kind of give a look and then you go back try to find where you were before and and then continue on down your path. Um, is that kind of similar to, to how you go about it or? Yeah, I'd say for sure, you know, and I definitely kind of go with a, you know, a macro to micro approach as well. Um, you know, you know, and really I start with my eyes, right? Like, and just get in there and do a, a, you know, pretty thorough search, you know, just cause I mean, your field of view with your eyes is like so crazy, right? Like you can see everything. And like you said, you're going to spot those obvious things. So it's like, okay, I'll start and I'll look in my immediate area, right? Because there could be a deer that's 100 yards away looking at you that you yeah. know, maybe it's a deer that you want to shoot, right? But then he's not going to be there for long, so you better catch him while you can. Um, so I'll, you know, kind of look close in first with my eyes. I'll hit the obvious spots. I'll also hit kind of like um, the ridges, you know, where something might be just you know, about to get out of my field of view or go over the yeah. hill. And so like, if you want to catch a glimpse of that and, and see, um, you know, if you might catch something doing that and it could be something where you want to, it might prompt you to go over that hill at some point in time. Right. And then after that, you know, it's kind of like what you said, get on, then break the tripod out, hit those obvious spots, you know, the stuff that looks really good and then start breaking it down with that grid. And, and I do it, um, you know, pretty much the, the same way that you do there. And, um, I don't know. It seems to be pretty effective, you know, spot some stuff every now and again, right? Right. Yeah, every now and again, for sure. Um, so just by the sounds of it, um, I mean, we're pretty pretty well similar. Uh, do you, out of curiosity, do you ever put a time limit? Like, a, like not like a hard, like a drop dead time, but you ever say like, okay, if I don't see anything in X time, I'm going to pack up and go look at the next ridge? You know, I don't know. Like, and, and I might be, I'm probably to like, I guess like a plus and a minus, like more patient than other folks, um, or than some. Right. Uh, but I'll, 
if I think it's good, I'll, I'll give it some time, you know, and I'll, I'll definitely get it some, give it some time and, and look until at least I feel like I've pretty much exhausted that, you know, hopefully I'm not missing something, but you know, inevitably it seems like, you know, you're like, okay, 15 minutes, man, we're going to, we got to go see some new country. Yep. And then at the very end, you're like, oh, there's a deer. You're like, ah, you know, then, <laughs> then you know, sometimes you, you stay longer because of that. So, um, I don't, that, that's a, that's a tough one, man. What, what do you do? So I'm, I'm, it sounds like you and I are pretty similar. Cause I'm the same way. I hate giving up on a spot. Um, you know, cause I've had deer, you know, you, you get there at daylight and then not seeing a deer until like 1030 in the morning, you know, as they're going up to bed. Uh, that, and that was in a, the mid, not the late hunt, um, not the December rifle hunt, but that was the, uh, like the late November, early December rifle hunt. So pre-rut, um, rifle tag. And we were glassing about, the, like you were saying, about that half mile, thousand yard range. And we were hitting it hard. Um, you know, we had my 15s, um, something back and 10s, 15s, um, and uh, uh, now it's going to draw a blank. The big spotter that you guys make, the Razor 80 mil. Oh, the, the 80, yep, the 80, yeah, the, tw- uh, yeah. the 20 yep, to 60. The 27 to 60 by 85. That, that one. one. Yeah, yep. we were running one of those. And, uh, you know, so we were picking apart every bit of shadows. And, you know, so we were sitting up there three, four hours, and we're getting ready to leave, right? So, all right, let's, you know, it's getting kind of warm. You know, let's let's head back down, you know, make something to eat, and then we'll go scouting, uh, go walk some other ridges, we'll learn some new country. Because um, that's, that's one of my downfalls is I never hunt the same unit twice, it seems like. Um, I'm always wanting to see something new, so I always apply and, and hunting someplace different. But uh, that's a habit I need to break and start learning some units. But, yeah, so we're sitting there and then, you know, said, all right, it was like 15 minutes, half an hour, whatever. We're going to sit here till X time and then we're, we're out of here. And then right before we packed up, just this three-by mule or uh, coos, Walks up the ridge, coming out of this manzanita, just walks up the ridge, goes up and beds. But he beds perfect. Like look, you could take would have been a badass photo. Um, just and just beds there, and that's. Uh, so we wound up getting uh, packing up, uh, making the stock on them. Uh, you know, so we were setting with a we have a hard four hundred yard limit with our rifles, and uh, got up there and just. I don't know if the wind swirled on us or if we were making too much noise, working up the draw, but he wasn't there when we got when we topped out. Um, we topped out, he would have been like 375 to the bottom of the tree. And just, I, like I said, I don't know. Just I'm still learning the wind patterns here, like the whole uphill versus downhill and, you know, as it pertains to the day. Um, and I, I think that's what it was. Just the wind switched on us and he got a whiff and that was all it took. Um and so yeah, far, that's I mean, the only coups I've I made because I'm always chasing muleys or elk or something. So <laughs> that's the only one. That, that's the only really coups coup story I got right now. Yeah, I mean they're they're I mean they're all they're all cool and they're tricky and I think that's why they're so you know fun to chase and not to mention they taste pretty damn good too. But uh, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, and every time I head down, you know, I mean, I, I think because it is so challenging and pretty much they do win, you know, more yep. often than not. It's kind of what actually keeps you coming back but um and the hunts are so different right like you know and again i've got limited experience there but that october rifle is so different from that january archery oh, season yeah. i mean just like the, the numbers of deer that you're seeing is like just insane like you might see you know hopefully like 
a handful of deer, at least for me, right in that October season, most of them are going to be does. Um, you know, you, at least for me, it was like hunt all week, um, to get an opportunity at like a buck, right. Right. Where during the archery season, you're going to see a lot of deer. You're going to see a lot of does. You're going to see more bucks than you might earlier, but obviously you have the limitations of, uh, of the weapon and it's just you know uh, you know which is partly guys but, get it done you right know, guys which is, that's the majority reason why it's set up that way is is to make it harder because the deer are moving so much more and i think that's one thing that folks don't realize that are you know that are get our new transplants coming here is how much different the rut timing is versus the northern states and the eastern states i mean because these these coups and for the most even the muleys uh, they're not rutting until January. Like that archery tag is the rut hunt. That, but when you're in here in October, you're pretty much they they're not changing a whole lot than they were in August. The only difference is that it's like 30 degrees cooler. Um, yep. that's really the only difference. They're still on summer patterns. Um, it's about useless to find the does other than just making sure you're in the right habitat. It's a it's a buck hunt. It's you you got to find the bucks. Because they're still going to be in bachelor groups. They're still going to be hanging out. Um, might be might be breaking off here and there, but for the most part, you they're not interested in does yet. So it's a whole different hunt than even the late December hunt when that's when they're going to be pre-ruddy. And then January, you know, that's when you know that's when the ball drops, and you know that's more like hunting you know November in the Midwest. Um, so I think guys just don't realize that because that's why those October tags are so easy to draw is that it's just a much more difficult hunt. You know, it's no different than um, the, our late November archery tags for elk. Uh, it's they're, 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 Those hunts are post-rut, but it's such a difficult hunt, but that's why the tags are so easy to get. Um, yeah. But one, there's a shitload of tags, uh, and two, it's it, – well, it's archery um, – and but the bucks are or the bulls are spent. You know they're not here to, you know they're not thinking about the ladies anymore. All they're thinking about is recouping, um, recouping all that weight that was lost, um, and just kind of getting back. And so and they've been hunted since. Um, I mean, guys have been scouting them since July for the most part. So they've been fighting people for months. I mean, they're diving into those deep dark canyons that nobody wants to go into. Um, or you know you got to be you know like. You got to be like a Josh kind of guy to, to dive in and go after him kind of thing. Because that's the only way you're going to kill a big bull is you got to get after it or get yeah. really lucky one or the other. And then you got to be able to get it out of that hole too. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And that's the part. That's where the real work begins. Uh, and that's another one that's that's interesting for glassing too because them bulls they just they set tight. They're in those deep dark canyons, so it presents you a whole different. Uh, fight or strategy again um versus you know coos deer hunting or, or mule deer hunting um is that you can still glass them up but you're fighting a lot of timber um and that's that's more akin to what you're what you were experiencing up in washington it's it's more similar to, in my head to what that kind of blacktail hunting might be yep yep yeah you got lots of openings but you got lots of timber and you know glass and edges or trying to you know at least peak you know, in, in, you know, inside that timber edge to see if you can, you know, spot yep. a buck or bull in there and, and, you know, and, and, and you can do it. I mean, you can definitely do it. I mean, and it's, it's a super, super effective technique, but yeah, I've never, I've never hunted elk in Arizona, but, uh, I've heard, you know, great things about it. That's for sure. 
Oh yeah, it's uh, all my buddies call it the land of the giants. Um, it's there they kill some giant bulls here. Oh, pardon me, but um, I I am curious though when you're so when you're coming down, um, say for that October tag or if if you're here for in January for the OTC tags, what does your optics loadout look like? So, it, you know, it, it'll probably it'll probably change whether I'm rifle hunting or bow hunting, right? right. So if I was if I was rifle hunting, um, my kit would be. Uh, I'd probably have our new um, Fury HD 5000s, uh, the AB version, with the applied ballistics version. So I'll, I'll go through the process of uh, getting all my ballistics data, inputting it in uh, to, uh, to the binocular there via the, via the, the Fury HD app that we offer. And, and so it just becomes, you know, a really cool piece of equipment that's super effective for um, you know, making sure that your dope is on and that you're able to execute, um, you know, a long range shot if needed, which I find that Arizona definitely presents oftentimes <laughs> pre- presents an opportunity for a little bit longer shot. So being able to extend your effective range confidently right. and, and being proficient at that, which I'll, I'll emphasize that you definitely have to know what you're doing. You have to practice, um, and, and be confident, you know, in any shot that you take, but that, that uh, piece of equipment like that can extend your effective range. It's got onboard environmental sensors. Um, so it's going to give you, you know, your, your pressure. It's going to give you your temperature, things like that. It's going to calculate those things in with your ballistic solution real time. So it's going to be, you know, essentially uh, like just uber accurate to where you are at that specific time versus like, oh, you know, if I'm just going to create a dope chart, I might be like, well, I'm probably going to be around 5,000 feet. Well, mm. maybe you go a little bit higher. Maybe you get a little, go a little bit lower. The fury is going to, you know, cal- calculate that, you know, real time. And so um, that's a really cool piece of equipment. So that's probably what I'd have on my chest. It's a 10 by 42. So, I mean, you've got, you know, you kind of like your quick squint, quick scan, quick look binocular. The optics are pretty darn solid in it. You've got your range finder. And it's going to give you that ballistic solution, right? So you've got a lot of dual-purpose functionality built in. Uh, and it's, you're going to gain some speed there, too, if, if time is of the essence. Um, so I'll have that on my chest. I'll probably have, if I have a 10, I'll probably have a UHD 18 by 56 in the top lid of my backpack. And that's going to be like my tripod glassing binocular. Um, and then I'll probably have a spotting scope with me as well. And, that, and for me, that's probably going to be... Um, our Razor HD uh, 65 millimeter angled spotter. So, okay, so it's not so bad to pack it. What now? So it's not so hard to pack because, you know, that's, that's the smaller barrel on it. Yeah, yeah. It fits in your pack a little bit easier. It's a little bit lighter weight. I mean, um, it's definitely not like a – it's almost uh, – deceiving it's not like a giant weight savings over the 85 millimeter version but it is some and like you said and it and that for me has enough magnification that i'm going to get a look at anything that i want to look at personally but so that's how my that's how my rifle loadout would look um for the archery hunt uh i basically went with um and i guess with both those i'd be running our new um summit carbon tripod is what i'd run with that and it's it's super lightweight it's two and a half pounds it's way compact right so it's going to fit in any 
you know, spotting scope pocket or, you know, pretty much in, in any modern good hunting backpack, you're going to, it's going to fit nicely, be easy to carry lightweight. It won't get you to like necessarily like a standing height. Right. But for sitting and kneeling, which is basically how I do, I'd say 98% of my glassing, uh, it's going to suit your needs just fine. So, uh, that's that, that little summit carbon tube that's going to be with me on both those hunts. Um, but then for the archery hunt, like I said, I'm going to have, uh, probably a 12 by 50 on my chest. And so that'll be like my, you know, scanning as well as my tripod binocular. And then I'll carry that, uh, same 65 millimeter razor spotter with me as well. So I'm only going to have, and then I'll have, um, excuse me, uh, the razor HD 4,000, uh, handheld range finding binocular. Yep. I'll just have that right on my binocular harness so I can, uh, you know, just quick up, pick, you know, quickly range with that one handed, you know, get it back down in a pocket or use the utility clip on the side and then hopefully, uh, you know, shoot a coos deer, which, uh, <laughs> That's at least for me is somewhat of an exercise in futility, but it, it usually is. Yeah. From, from the little experience I have chasing coos and then from hearing everybody else, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely an adventure hunt. It's, they don't always come out with meat, but you always come back with one hell of an experience. Yeah, I mean, it's it's cool. You're going to see amazing country. Uh, you're going to see deer. You're going to get some stalks in, whether or not, you know, you get one or not. You know, that's kind of up to the deer gods, I guess, <laughs> But uh, or how good of a hunter you are. So maybe that's more of a reflection of, of that for me. But, man, it does happen. Guys do do it, and it just gives you the motivation to be like, it can be done, and just that <laughs> challenge. Like, if, if you shoot a coos deer with your bow, you you know, or really any deer with your bow anywhere in the country, um, you've done something. I mean, that, that, that's a big accomplishment for sure. Oh yeah. You're really, you're doing something right. Yeah. You've got to figure out, figure it out in some way, shape or form. Um, and I'll take luck too. Oh yeah. I'd rather be lucky than good any day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so you're saying you're using the, the, the summit, the summit tripod. Um, I know there's, you guys have a bunch of new tripods out this year. Uh, with that summit in particular, um, I can't remember. Does that have a pan head or a ball head on it? So it's got a two-way pan head. So three of our new tripods this year, uh, you know, we've got another version. Uh, so I, maybe I'll describe that summit, but it's, you know, carbon fiber leg set. So super lightweight. Um, it's got twist lock legs. They're super functional, easy to use, uh, super streamlined. You know, they're not going to hang up on anything. Uh, and then it's got a two-way pan head with just a single turn adjust. So it's kind of like, you know, basically, you know, turn to the right to tighten it, turn to the left to uh, loosen it. And then, you know, you just got your, your up, down, left, right. So um, simple to use there. Uh, we've got another version essentially that's just um, gets you to that standing height. So same tripod just gets you to the standing height. Uh, we've got uh, an alu- a new aluminum tripod with lever lock legs and that same head. And then we have our new Radian carbon tripod, um, which is purpose built for shooting. So you're seeing a lot of like um, precision rifle shooters use that. But then also like a state like yours, uh, Arizona, uh, you know, whether you're an outfitter or something like that, you know, definitely could be worth packing. Cause just like, uh, a tripod will keep your optics steady. They are an immensely effective shooting platform and, yeah. you know, for precision or maybe a person that, um, is a little bit newer to hunting. Uh, gosh, I mean, it, it's tough to find a better rest than shooting off a tripod and it can be a really versatile piece of equipment to have. Yeah. That's something you see. I've, so I personally, I've, I've used the tripods for shooting prairie dogs. That's been the limit of my experience right now. I think it was with the, with the bog pod version. Um, but yeah, those, the tripod mounted or uh, the tripod 
rifle rests are immensely popular here. Um, it doesn't matter, you know, if you're uh, an outfitter or you're you're taking out a kid. I mean, it's it's phenomenal for kids too because you know dad can or mom can get the rifle set up. You know, it's it's locked and ready to go. Kid come up, you know, and you just touch off the trigger. The rifle's not going to move. Um, yeah. So it's been phenomenal, you know, seeing seeing kids being able to to get success from utilizing this this technology. Because um, you know, it's not like you know, you, you, whenever I picture like Eastern style deer hunting, like the way I grew up doing it. Um, you know, a lot of kids' first deer are out of like a shooting house or te- a Texas tower, as I always called them. And you know, with those, they have a lip on them, or you got a rail on a tree stand. You know, that's how I shot my first ones on a tree stand. But you got some place to rest the rifle that doesn't always happen in the West, um, just because you're always running and gunning. Um, and I mean, there's always impromptus, you know, your, your backpack or whatever, but it tends to be more, they tend to be more used by experienced outdoorsmen, um, most because they can be kind of floppy and you have to know how to steady it, steady the rest just as much as to steady the rifle to, to yep. make them, to make them effective. Um, I know my buddy, we were chasing the hoveling with his flintlock, uh, in February and that's what he was using for back, his backpack for the rest. Um, but you know, it's just as much, you know, keeping your hand on that pack frame to keep it, you know, so your pack's not flopping around and keep those two married together, you know, so you can you know, touch off that nice, effective shot. Unfortunately, you know, the pigs didn't cooperate and wasn't able to touch one off, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's that same kind of, you know, but he's been doing it for a long time. You know, he's a, um, whereas somebody that might be not as used to it, that's something that I think, um, like you always see people saying, you know, how you should practice how you hunt. And I've never seen anybody in a rifle range shooting off their backpack. Um, not they're off a hunting pack. I see like the technical guys do some similar stuff, but you never see guys with a deer rifle, practicing those kinds of off-the-cuff shots kind of thing yeah for sure you know and i think i think that's definitely a good reminder for for all of us right and i think that's smart you know practice like you hunt like it's definitely good whatever you're doing to get that your rifle zeroed like as confident as you can be and just knowing like okay the gun is zeroed now everything is up to me but once that gun is zeroed yeah i mean Practice like you're going to hunt, you know, shoot off your pack, shoot prone. If you, if you generally have a bipod, you know, shoot off your bipod or, you know, if you've got trees or other, you know, things handy. I mean, any improvised rest is better than no rest in my opinion. Right. And then, uh, but then, yeah, going back to the tripod side, I mean, that is other than maybe prone off a bipod. I mean, you you'd be hard pressed to find a better rest and it's super versatile and you know, you can loosen it and turn with it. And like you said, with, with somebody who might have less experience, you know, there's definitely, you're talking about using your pack, right? Like, and if you're using your pack from a sitting position, like you said, you're manipulating two pieces of equipment. You have to know how they marry up together. You have to know that, well, when I squeeze the pack like this, the rifle does this. I mean, there's a lot more going on there than just, you know, like, like you said, you know, get the tripod set up, get it on the animal everything is going to be steady get a good nice squeeze um and uh and and just being steady is just really is so important for you know executing that shot and getting the impact that you want so um yeah it, it's cool and, and it's not only a western thing either though right like you know if that you could be in a in a blind here in wisconsin or somewhere in the midwest or whatever where yep. um uh, you're obviously you're not going to get prone right you might have a window to shoot off of but man in that case you know having a tripod in that controlled environment it's it really is going to be an asset for sure yeah i mean it's it's 
yeah, I definitely get what you're saying. Um, and I fully agree with you. I don't want, I just kind of made it sound like I wasn't agreeing with you. Um, I mean, my dad, I mean, he carries, he, he carved a stick, you know, a tree branch um, that had a fork in it and just wrapped it with, you know, with P-cords. You, you know, you always want to have some extra P-cord with you. And that's what he carries in the woods with him. Uh, you know, if he's in a, he's in a spot, you know, he can't get up against a tree quick to, you know, to touch off a shot. He can put that on there, marry the two together with his hands. And you know, and he, yep. he can let that 280 bark and, and, uh, you know, hopefully come home with a white tail. But, um, yep. Yeah, and that's going to be super fast to implement too. Like, I mean, a tripod can definitely be fast, but I mean, that's a, probably about as fast as it gets. Like, yep. and and we all know hunting generally a pretty dynamic scenario. And if you're able to plop that down and get on it and execute that shot, I mean, I'm a big fan of whatever's going to work. <laughs> <laughs> well, because I'm just as as we're talking about this, all I'm picturing right now is um, you see the hunts in Africa. They, there's a reason they always hire a guy to walk behind you with a set of tri- with shooting sticks, whether it's a bipod or a tripod style sticks. There's a reason those guys rely on those, you know, nice. You know, they deploy very fast, but just it allows you to get that shot off so much better. Especially, you know, those guys are hunting those big, big like 458 lots and you know 416 Rigby's and these like 15 pound rifle kind of setups. But um, animals that have names like Black Death for a reason, you know, like right. you want to make a good shot. <laughs> yeah, was it was it Robert Ruark said the Cape Buffalo looks at you like you owe him money. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, you definitely don't want to wind up in a capstick style, uh, style scenario. Um, but uh, oh, going back to tripod. Um, so you're running your summit tripod. Um, you've got all your different optics variants. For I mean, so with with um, spotting scopes, you know, they tend to have the feet, or you put an adapter on. How are you marrying your tripod to your binoculars? Like, what kind of adapter do you like? So, yeah, so, and, well, one thing I should have mentioned about all our new tripods, which, you know, like like we talked about, we completely revamped our entire tripod line this year, but they all <laughs> are compatible with an Arca-Swiss plate, right? So, and we're talking about whether it's, uh, you know, that's the plate that you're going to, you know, mount on your spotting scope or, you know, to your tripod adapter. Um, just a very, uh, it's almost like, it's almost become like a standard, you know, for tripods nowadays. So um, a lot of compatibility there across, you know, multiple platforms, whether it's photography or, or optics or shooting or things like that. A lot of guys are having Arca rails built into their rifles, or you can mount an Arca plate to your rifle. So just a lot of versatility there. Um, But yeah, as far as attaching it, and I got to use it for really the first time this last fall, a prototype version, but our new pro bino adapter is just like really really cool and i'm really excited to use it the final the quote final final version more uh this uh this spring and fall but it's a lightweight it's a it's a you know essentially a post that you mount to that that arca swiss plate and then you've got a stud that you thread into um you know i guess the front of your binocular or i guess the objective end of your binocular um all of our binoculars are tripod adaptable. So sure. on the front where you see the the VTX logo, essentially just thread that out. And it's almost like a little button that you thread out. And then you can thread that stud in. And then, uh, yeah, just plug that into the, the bino adapter post. It's super quick. And, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're glassing off your tripod in no time. That, that's going to be pretty handy because I know I need, I'm going to have to get my hands on a, on a couple of adapters and a few studs, get all my stuff adapted over. And, um because I know, like for me, I've used—I forget what this one is called—but it's kind of like the standard, you know, the Vortex, you know, yep. the post style. Um, I've used these for a while. Um, I use these on my or this on my ten buys, but uh, I know I use this. And then um, 
on my 15s because I'm not putting them in and out of a, a chest harness. Um, I just I keep a, a unit adapter, a Vortex unit adapter on with a, with an Arca plate. Just because, mm-hmm. you know, just because like you were saying, I do a lot of photography and that Arca plate is just, that's the universal one. Um, and I'm really glad to hear that Vortex is gone, Arca, because that's been an issue that I've had in selecting tripods is that everybody wants to have a proprietary plate. Um, and that just doesn't work if you're trying to transcend, you know, binos, spotting scopes, cameras. Um, I know if anybody like, uh, so I, I carry my camera on my chest with I have a, the Peak Design clip. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I love it, but I mostly love it because I can just take it off the clip and put it on my tripod because I've set it up and it's Arca Swiss compatible. Um, so I'm really excited to hear that that, you know, all the new ones are going to be our, our Arca Swiss because that's going to make my life a ton easier, um, especially having one that I, I, you can stand with because my current one, so I don't run a Vortex one right now, um, but I can't stand with mine either. Um, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, oh, talk about the sitting. Um, so what do you carry with you to make yourself comfortable when you're behind the glass? Like as far as like a seat or pad or just what do you have in your pack to to make your seat or your stay that much more bearable? You know, so I generally, no matter the hunt, oftentimes I just find it beneficial to um, – have essentially a full-size backpack with me yep. you know because at least I, I try to be optimistic that i'm going to be hauling a deer or something out <laughs> of the woods with me uh and you need a means of doing that right but you know definitely serves double duty you can keep all your gear and that you might want to take with you through the day and food and all that good stuff um carry your optics carry your tripod but man a full-size backpack makes a heck of a backrest um and i'd say 99.9 percent of the time maybe all the time maybe 100 percent of the time man if i sit down to glass like i've got my backpack um either just on even just in the straps a lot of times and i just you know i can push back into it into the hillside and it's almost like being in a recliner a little bit um provides back support i think it helps me stay less fatigued um, yep. just because it is providing that support and it kind of pushes you into your, your tripod bino system. So I'm, I've always got that and I'm always kind of tucked into my backpack. And then, uh, I'm actually pretty bad about bringing, uh, uh, a cushion with me. Uh, admittedly, like I pretty much never bring a cushion. Um, I do plan on changing that because I think, you know, Z light makes like a really cool, uh, you know, kind of foam seat, um, I see a lot of guys using that and I've got a, I guess I've got a Z light full size sleep pad that basically doesn't weigh anything. I think it's, I don't know, nine or 11 ounces or something like that for the whole thing. So this yep. would be like a minute square of that. So I think I'll probably go to that. Uh, I've tried some other seats as well, but like, I don't, the ones that I like kind of like are less rigid and kind of conform to, I guess the, you know, kind of what you're sitting on a little bit more versus like a rigid one where you feel like you have to kind of stay balanced on it, I guess, if that makes sense. Right. It's more like sitting in the um, cheap seats at a, at a ball game. Yeah. I mean, as much as I should be working on my core, like I just want to be <laughs> lazy and comfortable. So, um, so that that's when I do bring a seat, I guess, like I definitely like something that's a little bit more, um, m- more of a flexible material, but it's going to keep, you know, keep you insulated from the cold ground, keep you dry. And then, um, and then also like in your neck of the woods, you know, keep the, keep the pointy things out of your rear end. So, oh yeah. Everything wants to, if it doesn't stick, stab or bite, it doesn't belong in the, in the desert. 
It's true. <laughs> uh, yeah, cause I think the only thing I do is I, I take it a little bit a step further as I started carrying one of the packable chairs, like the camp chairs. Um, Ooh, yeah, they, uptown. Yeah, oh, yeah. It's But like you said, it kind of keeps your butt, you know, out, out of all the stickers. And um, But one thing I like about it, too, is the ones I got. So my mom got them for me for Christmas a few years ago. Uh, but they're bright orange. Well, they're, they're like blaze orange kind of colored. So mm-hmm. it might sound kind of counterintuitive when you're deer hunting, but I like them because if I do make a move, I can just turn around quick and um, spot those chairs, and then I know where I was sitting, and I can kind of gauge, you know, triangulate where he was or the buck and or whatever I'm chasing, and um, I can kind of keep track of my positioning. You know, I can look at on X. I mean, I'm always I look at my phone way more than I probably should when I'm in the desert. Um, but between the on X and there, I can kind of triangulate and try to figure exactly you know, where he truly was. Because, I mean, when you try to guesstimate on the map, you don't always, you know, drop that pin exactly where, you know, you think he should be. Um, For sure. Yeah, no, I'm I'm the same way. Like, yeah, you, I drop that pin. I take multiple pictures with my phone, you know, yeah. trying to, you know, because, man, the second you take that step, you know, down the hillside, you're like, where was it now? Like, everything just looks so different. And then you get closer and closer, and the roll of the hills changes, and you you can't see what you could see from across the valley. So trying to identify landmarks and figure it out, man, it's it's a tough game that yeah, I certainly haven't mastered. You're trying to find that one that one prominent black rock on the ridge. You're trying to find that one giant Palo Verde that's growing or, you know, what have you. And um, and then it's like, well, same thing you were talking about when you were still hunting, you know, kind of every time you take a step, it's a new, it's a new perspective. Um, I know I always had the habit, um, my dad drilled it into me, is, you know, you, you walk away, turn around. Because the woods look, mm. you, I mean, area you were just in looks nothing like what you're looking at right now. Just that's that different look. Um, mostly because big wood style, and, you know, that was his way of teaching me not to get lost or get panicked or whatever. Is you look around, so, yeah, it's not going to look the same. You know, I think that's where a lot of folks get panicked or whatever. So it does, nothing looks familiar. Yeah, no shit, because you're looking at it from a different perspective. Um, <laughs> you know, it's a different point of view. Uh, and I think the same thing happens out here. You know, that ridge that it's, you know, every, everything looks different no matter what you're doing. Um, well, and you think, you know, at least where I've been, you're like, oh, it's wide open. Like, I'm going to be able to see it. I'm going to be able to tell. And then, but no. No, oh, yeah, you don't like, take account that one little roll in the hill that blocks everything from your view. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's insane. I mean, I remember a couple of years ago I was hunting, I was chasing uh, muleys up up north out of here, and uh, I thought I had this buck dead to rights. You know, he was running with six does, and the does were pulling him away from me. I got busted by the lead doe, um, and I just kind of kept, you know, kind of like a wolf hunting bison, you know, kind of stayed off on that peripheral, and um I thought I had their pattern kind of figured out. So, all right, I can go up here and get in front of them. I, I topped one ridge, and they were gone, just, like, like vanished. Um, but for whatever reason, uh, those seven mule deer turned into six pronghorn. Um, I topped the ridge, and it was, it was super windy, dude. I topped the ridge, and I had four muleys, or uh, four buck and two doe pronghorn 60 yards from me right, right in this basin. Um, I mean, it was January, so I mean, the bucks, the, the, the horns are starting to swell out. You know, they're getting ready to shed pretty soon. And um, yep. but it was pretty cool. Cause, I mean, I had those. I was sixty yards from half a dozen goats, and never knew I was there. But never did find those bucks again. But yeah, it was that whole you know looking back behind me. So, all right, you know, trying to figure out where they're going based on where I am, and trying to figure out you know because she's trying to get away from me. 
So it's trying to like think like a deer. All right, she's going to want to, she's going to get low. She's going to get in the brush. She's going to try to get out of the wind and get away from me at the same time. Um, so it's trying to, and that's and that's partly you know my issue with I don't learn units. I, I mean I learn a unit, but I'm always changing units. Yeah. Um. So I don't know them, know them like the back of my hand kind of thing. But uh, uh, man, it's still one of my favorite just because it was just kind of so random. You know, I went from seven muleys to six antelope in like thirty seconds. It was like, where the <laughs> hell this buck go on oh, a coyote? I chased one really fluffy coyote out of there, but that was, and then uh. Oh, and then I wound up killing a, a pig there like three days later. But <laughs> dude, what? that sounds like a game rich spot. Yeah, that area is known. Uh, it's one of my favorite spots. I mean, this year, I had that was where I had my javelina tag this year too. And this was a, this was a couple years ago, but this year, um, I, I from the time I parked the truck, the time I had the the pig stuck was forty five minutes. You know, I parked the truck, threw on, you know. Threw on a pair of chaps because the wind was howling. The wind is always howling up there. Threw on all the clothes, walked over the ridge, pig right there, got within, like, I think I shot him at 34 yards. Just done deal, pinwheeled him, and he yeah. was and he was down. But, yeah, it doesn't always happen like that. Um, you know, but I was set up uh, for all day. You know, kind of like we were talking about, you know, full-size backpack. You got all the optics and all that, and then wound up. Only thing, piece of optics I used was my rangefinder. Uh, just because I just need to know how far away the little stinker was. Yep. But, yep. Uh, yeah, that's one thing. You know, we're talking about that Razor HD 4000 rangefinder too, and and the the optics in that are are really really good for a handheld rangefinder. So I find myself oftentimes, I mean, I always have my binos on me, for, but for for quick look stuff, um, for with minimal movement, maybe I don't want to. Maybe I want to be super quiet and I don't want to open my harness or something like that. Um, you can really use that that uh, H Razor HD 4000 rangefinder as a monocular and as like a quick look device. Um, you know, to be like, yeah, oh man, is that you know maybe it's something that's you know 80 or 100 yards away. You're like, oh man, is it is that a deer's tail or is yep. it, what is that? And you know, you can be in those close quarter scenarios. It can be a really handy tool as well to to use as a handheld optic. So what power is that? A six X like most rangefinders or? So that one's a seven actually. Yeah. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. All right, because I was just looking at um, because I, I run the, the Ranger 1800. I use mine the exact same way. Is you know my uh, the 1800s are a 6x, and I use mine mm-hmm. as a monocular. Um, if when I can't, you know, just grab the binos and um, because maybe you do this too, but I always find myself, especially when I'm bow hunting, I always use the cam. I st- stick the bow up, so I have my cam right here, and I can use those as kind of like an impromptu, kind of like get as close to my body as possible, so that that major contact point, um, just yeah. to steady them a little bit more and um. Uh, cause I mean, I'm pretty similar to you as by the sounds of it, um, in the way that I go about it and yeah. Um, sorry, I'm just trying to look at these notes and I think we've, we've covered everything I got on here. So I'm kind of okay, going off cool. the cuff now. <laughs> sorry. I was, no, um, totally. But yeah, I mean, and it's funny, like everything, everything we've talking about from, from tripods to this, or you're talking about, you know, using the cam of your bow. Like, I mean, it's really in some ways, like it's reemphasizing the same point, man, just getting a rest to get steady for whatever you're doing. It's just going to make you so much more effective. Yeah. And the, I think I threw the example too, like, um, you ever grab the brim of your hat? Oh yeah. 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 Uh, there's just those kind of like, I call them redneck tricks, but those little tricks to just get yourself steady. Cause you, until you get steady and 
I know you mentioned it too, but like when the first time that I threw a pair of binos on a tripod, it was like, where has this been all my life? Dude, life changing. Like it's, it's like uh, it's like an epiphany moment. You're like, oh my gosh, what have I not seen the last X amount of years because I wasn't doing this? Yeah, because my first my first pair of binos when I came out here was a set of uh, D back 1042s. Um, yep. To me, I mean, I love the D backs. Um, so I've done wildlife for a lot of years, and D backs were always that was the bino to use um, between your guys' warranty because wildlifers were rougher in hell on stuff. And, you know, so yeah, wicked bang for your buck. But I mean, I was glassing coos deer at over a thousand yards, you know, yep. to, which to me was unreal. You know, everybody talks about you, you, you need the big fi- um, 15s. Um, you need big eyes. I mean, there's a reason that those got, you know, those became so prevalent down here. I mean, I mean, heck, your guys' uh, big bios are called the Kaibabs, um, yep. which is funny enough because it's a mule deer area, not a coos area. But uh, right. <laughs> maybe you guys, should, well, maybe the next line would be like the, the, I don't know, the 20 by 50 or 56 Aravacos or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally, man. No, but, and I think that's also like, oh, man, I keep hammering over the same point. People are like, dude, quit talking about tripods. But um, I don't think you can talk enough you can about have, them, really. Yeah, you can have, you know, a quotation mark, maybe lesser quality bino. A tripod's going to make it like a much higher quality bino just because you're just going to be able to spot more things better with it. And, you know, case in point, when Jim and I were in Arizona, we had a, a we were hunting with a guy for a day. He was kind of uh, showing us the lay of the land on our first day and then, you know, cut us loose. But um, super nice guy down there. But he had a set of 12 power um, crossfire binos, which for us, that's kind of like, I don't, I don't want, I don't, I definitely don't want to call it entry level, but it's our entry point into our binocular series, which is a pretty deep lineup of optics. You know, if you're going to kind of go in order to be like crossfire, diamondback, viper, razor, razor UHD, right. With mm-hmm. the razor UHDs at the very top end. Um, dude, he was like, you know, put those things on a tripod. He's like, there's a deer, there's a deer, there's a deer, there's a deer. You know, Jim and I are just trying to get our coos eyes going, uh, you know, and I've got the UHD 12s, you know, thinking I'm a big baller out there. And I'm like, oh, man, this guy's pretty good. Uh- <laughs> but at the same time, you just t- you just hit on something I was going to actually talk about was the guy had Kuz eyes. Uh, so for folks that don't know what in the heck we're talking about, you've until you've seen your first animal, especially the one you're looking for, you know, in the binos, the first one's always the hardest one to spot. Just because you it's your size ratios, it's your coloration, it's your contrast, you know. It's but once you get that first one figured out, it's like the rest of them have neon lights on them, kind of situation. And you know that guy having coos eyes made makes a world of difference. Yeah, just like you said, just having that uh, yeah, the um, just knowing knowing what you're looking for, knowing like the, what you know the their, the color that they are in comparison of what's around them. Um, the, just and their scale, right? Like they are tiny little buggers. So yeah, like, oh, it makes them easy. I don't know. I don't think any of them are easy to spot. But uh, uh, they're uh, just yeah, their scale in relation to other things on the landscape is like uh, it, it takes a minute to get it down, you know. But that spotting that first one is like probably it's kind of like a waterfall effect. After that, you're like, okay, that's it. That's what I'm looking yeah, for. Yeah, that's you know? what I need. Um, cause I know like with uh with javelinas we call them uh, jalos. because uh, when you're glassing. So they kind of shine. I mean, coos deer too do too, I think. But they kind of have a sheen shine to them, like the sun reflects off of them. 
but so does the the basalt rock, and so does a pal, uh, a prickly pear with the right light. So we'll have what we call um, JLOs. It's a Havelina-like object, and because <laughs> you know you always have that rock. You know it's you know it's like, that's a pig. Well, no, that's a that's a big hunk of granite. You know, or it's you know it's a prickly pear. It's a it's a burnt base of a saguaro or something like that. And, but then you always get this. Oh, I'm just seeing JLO to JLO JLO until one of your JLOs moves. Kind of things, right. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, just, it's learning that how to pick them out, and then one of the things that we didn't touch on with the tripods is, and we what we did, what we didn't, but it steadies you, but negating that motion in the in the binos that for your natural, because it doesn't matter how steady you are, you're going to have some sort of natural movement, um, but negating that highlights movement downrange, big time. Yeah, so I mean, it's I mean for you know, handheld, you need the whole deer to move to see it. You throw on a tripod, that necessary movement is down to an ear flick. Yep. Or uh, a tail flick, or, you know, putting his head down to, to uh, scratch or lick him, his leg or whatever. It really opens up your chances to spot him, really. Um, I know that's really dumbing it down, but that's it's it's insane how much. I mean, human eyes, I mean, there's a reason our eyes in the front of our head um you know as we have binocular vision so death um death perception and and spotting movement is is huge for us um you know because we are omnivorous but part of being omnivorous is being part at least partially carnivorous uh you know so it really for our you know the human animal it really helps us out to be able to spot movement no matter how far it is you know whether it's that that you know, that elephant right in front of you at 100 yards or, you know, a coos at, you know, 2,000, 3,000 yards. You know, oh, yeah. No, there, there's a reason our eyes are in the front. That's for sure. Yeah, it's – um, and I think it's something that as folk, you know, as folks start getting into this um, – oh, just messed with my screen a little bit. But as folks getting into this, you know, it'll become obvious um, or, you know, stuff that we're saying will kind of, oh, yeah, that's why they said that. That's that's what they're talking about. Um but that's why I kind of try to make this a little bit more simplistic uh, up front is try to break down those doors, that those barrier doors a little bit. Um, yeah. Because, like I said, so so many transplants. I mean, I'm one of them. Um, we got a lot of out-of-staters coming down and, and, and learning how to hunt State 48 because, it, man, it's unlike any other state that I've hunted. Um, I mean, I think unless the guys have hunted, like, maybe Utah or parts of New Mexico or maybe even southern Colorado. Mm-hmm. You know, that's those are really the ones that compare, but it's Arizona is a different animal. It's it's still its own cat, you know. And, and you're talking about breaking down barriers, and one thing that you know we try to do at Vortex with our optics line, you know, like we we're describing earlier, like it's a deep lineup of optics, right? It's not just kind of like you know whatever that that entry point or mid tier. It's like you know we've got our entry point, we've got you know mid-tier or you know i like to call it like that upper mid-tier stuff that approaches that top tier you know mm-hmm. optical quality and then we've got stuff that i think competes with any optic on the market and is a true you know alpha class binocular or, or spotting scope or or rifle scope you know so i'd say within that you know we all have budgets right we all have needs you know whether you're going you might go be hunting one week a year you might be hunting 10 weeks a year right that's yeah. gonna might dictate you know your personal optics needs but you know it's a deep lineup we try to have something for everybody you know within that lineup you know i'd say yeah definitely get the best you can afford um 
but man, you, you can do a heck of a lot with a, a diamond back or a Viper and, and you're still going to be able to spot game. You're still going to be super effective. Um, and then like we keep talking about, you know, put them on a tripod and it's going to even elevate that optical performance even more. So, yes. I mean, so I guess that's, that's pretty much it for anybody that's trying to listen to this is, you know, that's kind of my big takeaway too, is, you know, you don't need to drop 1500 bucks on a set of binoculars i mean you can run cross flares put them on a dang tripod go to walmart spend buy spend a uh, 30 bucks you know on one of the plastic ones just get it steady um but in saying that too there's a reason those nicer products are out there is they yeah. will up your game yeah i mean are they better yeah absolutely as you know as you spend more you're gonna get more um and you know given the opportunity man you know i, I love running those uhds right but yep. I, I have access to them um uh but uh yeah it's uh you you can get a heck of a lot done um and and i would never want somebody to feel like well man i can't go you know i mean this is arizona this is like you know glass country to the max i need you know, this super high, you know, high end right. stuff. You, you can, you can get a lot done with, uh, with just a good solid binocular. Right. And anything, you know, just, I mean, the big takeaway to me is just get out there, just do it. I mean, the, I mean, guys hunted. I mean, I remember reading the, the Jack O'Connor books, um, when I was a kid and, you know, he was hunting in Arizona back in the, the 1930s. And it was before binoculars were even common. I mean, they were shooting coos and muleys, and, and um, he was going out into, like, old Mexico and shooting desert sheep. And, uh, I mean, they were getting it done, you know, with stuff, you know, like, uh, I forget which one it was, like, Desert, Game of the Desert, I think it was. He was talking about he got his, his first pair of, like, 8 by 32 I think they were, like, the, the Kales, um, K-A-H-L-E-S, forgot how to Oh, yeah, it. sure, yep. Yeah, but he was running those, um... On a, he was hunting with like an old like Craig Jorgensen rifle or yeah I mean it was you know when a big scope was like 4x you know and it's it's uh and he was getting it done I mean they were those guys were killing sheep killing deer killing you know coos and muleys um I mean Havelinas were barely in the state at that point but uh cause they've only been here like a hundred years or something like that okay gotcha yeah they're a, a recent um self introduction i guess we can call it they just kind of started showing up about a century ago um uh, but now we have them all the way up in the grand canyon but uh i mean yeah guys were getting it done back then and then you look through those things now and it's you know it's um like a set of crossfires are a hundred times better than what jack o'connor was using back in the day I right mean, as the technology allows as the economy allows um you know those things have become you know the prices come down you know, because I don't even know what the relative price would have been for um, O'Connor when he bought those things. They might they might have been like UHD prices back then. Right. Right. Yeah. No, we've definitely come a long way, and and you know, I mean, technologies, and you know, you can compare it to like think of like when a flat screen TV first came out, right? They're right. like you know pretty exorbitant prices. Now it's like oh, that's you know fairly reasonable. Like, and so like as things develop over time, I mean, you can pretty get a pretty darn good optic, whether it's a rifle scope, a spotting scope, or a binocular, and you don't have to kill yourself in your pocketbook. And it, and it will, it will change your hunt. It will change the way you hunt. Uh, and I think it'll change your success rate as well. You know what I think would be kind of cool to do, and I might have to go around and do it is in, um, I'm directly going to say where I'm, where I'm going to copy this from, but 
uh, THP, the hunting public, did a, a project. They've done it twice now, I think, where they did like a Walmart challenge, I think it was. So they went and spent like, I don't know, it was like 300 bucks on a bow and then showing that how cheap you can get into hunting. Um, I think it'd be kind of cool to do here in Arizona with, along the same things, but with optics. Yeah. You know, like running a, a Walmart or a, a cheaper set of a tripod, um, a set of crossfire, maybe maybe upgrade a little bit, do like 1042s. Um, do you, is, there a, uh, is there a set of 1050s in the crossfire line? So, yeah, I mean, that's that's a deep lineup, too, and there's even a 1250 in the crossfire. So, I mean, you could, you Yeah, know, so maybe which, you're like a, like a 1250 on a crossfire, and, um, but mm-hmm. just showing, you know, getting out there, maybe not be able to, because Arizona hunting's hard enough as it is, but uh, at least showing, you know, hey, you know, for X amount, you can you can hit the desert and hit it hit the ground running. Um, I, I guarantee you could do that and be successful for sure. Oh, yep. yeah, yeah. That wouldn't be any issue at all, just, but, um... Maybe an idea for a YouTube video, or um, or you guys do a lot of videos. If you maybe it's an idea for one of yours coming up, come to Arizona. There you go. Yeah, you got your your UHDs and your crossfires right next to each other, and you know just rock and roll. Um, especially you know uh, on a nice sunlit day, because um, I think that's where uh, the nicer optics really come into play is when you get clouds. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a sunlit day, I mean, because I look at it from a photography standpoint, you know, a, a, a super tight shutter um, on a big lens, like a, I got a 500 mil lens, you know, it's it's pretty much a, a, a sunny day lens because of, in its own calculations, it's, it's got a very tight exit pupil. Um, and, you know, we've said a couple of times, um, do you mind explaining what exit pupil is? So, yeah, so, I mean... You would uh, essentially, you know, it can be defined as like a number and you get that number. Um, and I guess the number denotes like essentially like um, how much light is going to reach your eyeball through the optic. And so to get that number, like let's say you had a 10 by 50, that, that's a, a pretty round numbers, right? So you yeah. divide the objective diameter, which is 50 by 10, which is the power. And that's going to give you a five millimeter exit pupil. So that's like a, that's a really solid exit pupil. And they're, and they're really, you know, there's also a limit to how much um, light your eye can physically yep. take in. Right. So you might like, oh my gosh, well, maybe I need a, you know, a hundred millimeter binocular <laughs> by 10. It's like, nope, that's like, you're just, it's going to be like unusable for your eye. Right. Right. So. Yeah. No, there's, there's definitely a point of diminishing returns with, with exit yep. people. Cause I mean, what is it? Is it. Oh, I forget, but I think it's, is it five millimeter or six millimeter is from the average middle-aged male. Your eye can only dilate just so far anyways. Yeah. You know, I don't recall the exact number. A lot of other guys at Vortex would remember that. Probably should <laughs> add them on, but um, it's, it's something around that five mark, right? Before it's like, you know, it's just like, yeah, it's not going to do anything for you to have like a larger exit pupil. Um, I think children in general can take in a little bit more because, you know, their eye may, might not be fully developed at that point. Yep. But um, but so, yeah, so like you said, you're going to get some diminishing returns there. But I'd say also most optics are geared around knowing that. So you're never going to run into like, oh, man, I'm wasting all this exit pupil um, that I have because it's just going to be, you know, probably. Right, right. If they're not making around. it, yeah, there's no point to making it. In the first place, yep. um, yeah, but I was thinking but, for uh, like, uh, uh, yeah, because you don't really see a lot of like eight by fifties. Like that's not a, a size you really see. You know, eight but you know eight forty twos will have a very similar exit people to a ten by fifty. 
Um, right. Whereas the only difference really is, you know, two X power. Um, um, and to me, the the weight difference, you know, eight by forty twos versus ten fifties, you know, a lot smaller, um, mm-hmm. more compact, bigger field of view, etc. And that's kind of like an all things being equal too. You definitely want to compare like within a series, right? Like uh, right. if you're looking at the UHDs, you'd want to compare UHDs to UHDs because you might be like, oh, well, there's a Diamondback HD and it's a, um, uh, a, t- a 10 by 50. And so that's going to have the same, I guess by the numbers, it'll have the same exit pupil as like a 10 by 50, you know, Razor UHD, right? But um, the optical quality is, it's going to be, it's still going to be better, right? And you right. can actually make up for exit pupil, you, you know, you might have a, a 10 by 50 versus a 10 by 42 in different series. And the 10 by 42 is going to, you know, let in more light essentially because it has a better optical design versus the other one that might have by the numbers has a larger exit pupil, but you, versus a better optical design, you know, the better optical design can beat that out. Right. So there's, there's a whole lot going on there. Right. Yeah. I did, yeah. Um, uh, I didn't mean to make it sound like it was, you know, like, Vortex, you know, Diamondbacks versus Crossfires versus UHDs. Um, yeah, you definitely got to keep it in the same line because, I mean, those, you know, but uh, was it coatings and glass polishing? And, you know, there's a whole ton of stuff that goes into, you know, why those are, you know, what makes a UHD a UHD versus what makes a D-back a D-back. Yep, yep. Oh, man, optical design. You know, the, our optical <laughs> engineers, my hat goes off to them because, I mean, that is an art and a science and everything rolled up in one and they do some some pretty phenomenal stuff and they've got some crazy programs for calculating things and you know just like you said lenses and coatings and prisms and you know making them all work together i mean that's the tricky part you can uh, is making them all work together so everything is optimized as best it can be yeah i mean and that's yeah you just and then so it's pretty much gonna come down to like what your budget is um and you know to which line you want to go with, but you know, and the saying always is, you know, go with the best that you can afford. Like I've had, I've heard a lot of folks say, buy the best, you know, find the best you can afford, and buy the next one up, <laughs> yep. and deal with the consequences later. Um, you know, just because glass, it seems like is as much as we're just talking about, you can get away with crossfires. Glass is one of those items where you a thousand percent get what you pay for. Um, all the work that goes into them. You do, you know, and it's like, it's a more enjoyable experience, right? You know, the more, the nicer optics you have, the more you're going to want to use them, the more, the more effective you are going to be with them, the more uh, pleasant they're going to be to look through, the less eye strain you're going to get. If you're looking them through, looking through them for extended periods of time, like you likely will be in Arizona. So you want to definitely take those things into consideration, but you know, I, I can, you know, talk to the flip side of that and say, as you, kind of as you go up in price, there's some diminishing returns there. You're definitely paying more for less of an incremental increase in optical quality, right? So, you know, finding that balance point for yourself is definitely a good idea. And I mean, you're never going to go wrong with the best, right? It's the best, right? right. But um, uh, unless, you know, unless you got to, you know, like you said, there could be repercussions at home. You're like, what's the, <laughs> what was this? Uh, what was this for this charge? Um, right. But, uh, uh, but so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, definitely look at it, you know, gauge it, make the right choice for you. And, and like I said, you can get a heck of a lot of optical quality from, you know, uh, without killing yourself in your pocket at the same time. Right. Yeah. Cause, uh, at the end of the day, you still got to pay rent. But. Yes. <laughs> yes. Hopefully these optics will help you put food on the table, but it's not guaranteed. 
Right, right. Yeah, that's especially in Arizona. Um, <laughs> but I mean, that's one of the greatest parts about hunting, you know, is that we can provide, you know, all this, you know, out of after all the enjoyment, you know, it's, you know, because everybody says, you know, and they all mean it. You know, when you're when you're out hunting, you know, it's about the experience. It's the it's you're banking the memories. But I always say at the same time, there's a reason you carry a rifle. <laughs> um, and you know, yep. you get to enjoy and that's one of the best parts I think about wild game and in addition to all the, the nutritional benefits, um, I think it tastes a lot better than beef. Um, you know, I'm uh, uh folks pick on me because I I really don't like steak, you know, but I'll I'll eat every part of a whitetail you know yep. it's um but uh you know as you're eating it you're you're kind of reliving those memories oh which buck was this oh this is that one that was you know i shot him at 20 below zero in a snow squall you know kind of thing yeah it's and then you get to relive those and every bite's a memory and it's um it might sound cliche but it's it's true i mean as you're you know going up to nebraska for sharp tails this past year you know as you're eating sharp tail like you remember those the high winds you remember the bright sunlight you remember the the dogs working so phenomenally and um yeah you get to you get to relive it and that's the best part to, in, in my mind oh for sure and, and you worked for it right and there's just like such a high level of satisfaction of knowing you know the work that you put into it and the blood sweat and tears and the planning and the travel and like you know yeah. what is like you're talking braving the elements or you know hiking long distances you know i definitely uh you know you think more about it i think it makes you think more about food and what it takes to put food on your plate but yeah the level of satisfaction um and I think the desire to share that with other people, right, is just the heightened to you know definitely another level. Yeah, it's yeah, it's 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 its own animal unto itself is just the satisfaction you get after the fact. Yeah. Um, well, and then you get you know like the hunt itself. It's like you know you can plan a hunt for six months, and then you go on the hunt. And then you finish the hunt and then you've got, you know, X amount of meals to essentially like you're talking about, keep enjoying that hunt throughout the year until, yep. until the next time. Until you do it again. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I love it. That's, and that's why it's everybody, like, I know there's folks that hunt just, you know, once in a while, but that's why hunting I think has become, there is such a lifestyle kind of thing is it's just, you can get so you can dive so far into it and all you want to do is just keep reliving it and doing it over and over and over again. And that's what, man, I just, I can't get enough of it. I really nope. can't, but, that's um, the truth. but I guess Mark, um, I just looked at the clock and we're hitting almost, we're working on the second hour. We're on oh, the, geez. We're on the back half of the, of an hour and a half. But, um, so I guess we'll start wrapping this up, but I guess I wanted to ask you one last question, um, for, uh, maybe closing thoughts if you have any closing thoughts or my question would be is what you know hunting or, or shooting or outdoor related whatever kind do you have anything coming up in 2021 that you're really gung-ho for oh man i'm super jacked um i i've got a southeast alaska black bear hunt that Ooh. i'm gonna go on here in a few weeks and just yeah with some good buddies um and uh yeah, I just like I've been looking forward to it for a ton of time and I'm as excited about the bear hunting, you know, up there it's it's just a really cool, unique region. Uh those bears come down to the beaches in the spring and they're eating crabs and kelp and and grass, you know, that's grown along the shoreline. Um giant bears too, which is kind of cool. I think, you know, if you're looking to kill a big bear, that's probably, you know, one of the best regions on the planet to do that, but 
equally though, it's such a rich area in so many other ways. Um, I was up there uh, before, actually. I mean, this was just like one of the cooler things I've done, but was up there with uh, the Meat Eater crew uh, a few years ago, and uh, we were hunting uh, Sitka blacktails, and and Steve jumped in and free dove for sea cucumbers, and we ate those. And I haven't been able to stop thinking about them since, but I didn't get to go (laughs) in the water on that trip. So I procured a a wetsuit from a a friend of ours uh, at... at, uh, uh, DJ at, at North American rescue, which they do like all sorts of like, um, like med kits and things like that, which okay. actually that's a whole nother podcast. And, you know, people, something that people should be thinking about carrying in the woods with them is, is a good med kit and tourniquet and things like that. But he's a big free diver. So he lent me a ton of freeze dive stuff. So I, it actually arrived here the other day. So yeah, I'm hoping to hunt bears dive for sea cucumbers. I think there might be a good steelhead stream that I've identified that's in, in the area. So really just want to be up there and just, uh, man soak it in and, and do as much as i can so that sounds pretty wicked yeah um because you were it's funny you mentioned that because as i was um i think it was a couple months ago because you guys had maybe january you guys were just talking about that right because um i guess uh, uh another shameless plug for your podcast is you oh, had we'll take we'll take them all <laughs> but you had uh yanis patelis on there right yep yeah, yeah, Giannis, and he, yeah, he was on that hunt, and yeah, another super great guy, way knowledgeable outdoorsman. So yeah, he was actually he had, was coming through Wisconsin. Uh, he actually had a whitetail hunt here, and so we uh, yeah we had him over here, showed him the place, and you know had him jump on the podcast and talked uh, talked everything Giannis Patelis on that one, which is actually <laughs> that's one of my that was a really fun one. I really enjoyed that one. I know I got a kick out of listening to it, I and mean, I've, I've had a lot of fun listening to your podcast, and um, I guess Mark, I. I think that's all I got for today. Again, I thank you for coming on and, and taking time out of your day to to join on Arizona Field. Oh man, no, I appreciate it. Nope, uh, thanks, thanks for the invite, and uh, yeah, thanks for having such an awesome state. You guys are super blessed down there, <laughs> and uh, hopefully, hope to hope to see you guys soon as soon as I can get back, at least. Right, fingers crossed. Well, with that, I guess we'll say goodbye. Yep. Bye. Nope. Right. Appreciate it. Take care. Yep. Bye.